Hi, everybody, and welcome to Robcast number 12. And this one is called The Morning After The Morning After. And today, um, I actually have a studio audience. Once again, it's a studio audience of one. My beloved friend Gabe Sullivan is here. Do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. <laughs> and if you're a longtime Surfer Magazine reader, you will know Gabe as Curious Gabe. Um, Occasionally curious, that's true. Or you might just know the green Volkswagen bus that Curious Gabe is legendary for. So that's my studio audience. And today, because this Robcast will post on the Monday morning after the Sunday morning, which we know as Resurrection Sunday, sometimes called Easter. So I want to talk to you about resurrection. Some of you may have heard a sermon yesterday. Some of you have may have had some nice ham and an Easter egg hunt because that's in the Bible. Or that was a joke. Um, or you may just know culturally that there is a big holiday for some people and wonder what that's all about. Now, my observation would be that for many people, Resurrection Sunday often leads to two different things. For some people, what they heard yesterday was Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that when you die, you can go to heaven someday. And they've heard that before. So yesterday they heard what they've heard before, which is a lovely message. Um, although we're going to talk about what might be actually going on at Resurrection in just a moment. Or for other people, the moment they hear Resurrection Sunday and about a guy, namely Jesus, rising from the dead, they're like, seriously, do I have to buy that? People don't rise from the dead. That's crazy talk. And so for some, it's a message about what happens someday when you go somewhere else. And for others, it's just the same old crazy, pre-rational, religious myth-making that they believe that, didn't we outgrow this a long time ago? It's 2015. Come on. Let's be real about this sort of thing. So today... I want to talk to you about resurrection. First off, I want to give you a bit of history about where this idea even came from and why thousands of years later people are still talking about it. Then I want to talk about what resurrection is really about. And then I want to talk about you and your resurrection. So first off, history. 2,000 years ago, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a massive military economic, social, giant, just basically the biggest empire the world had ever seen. The Roman Empire went from England all the way to India, a massive military machine that charged into new lands after new lands, conquering everybody in sight. Now, the Roman Empire was run by a series of Caesars, emperors, and the Caesars believed that they were the sons of God, who had been sent to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. One of the main Caesar propaganda lines was, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved than that of Caesar. Another very famous slogan that the Caesars used was, Caesar is Lord. So what would happen is the Roman Empire, the most impressive military machine the world had ever seen, would march into your province and they would say, confess Caesar is Lord. If you said, okay, Caesar is Lord, then you would become, uh, your area would become part of the Roman Empire. You would be then begin paying taxes to Caesar, to the Roman Empire, and then the Caesar would take those taxes that you are now paying and use it to make a bigger army to go conquer more lands. But if Caesar came to your town 
and the soldier or the general, whoever it was, or the cinch said, confess Caesar's Lord. And you said, I'll tell you where to take that Caesar. Tell Caesar to bug off. They would say, oh. And then they would take you and they had a specific form of punishment because they had to show people what happens if you defy the empire. And the Romans had taken this idea from the Persians and a couple of others, and they had perfected a way to keep people in the most amount of pain without dying. Because if you kill some right away, someone right away for defying your empire, you can't, it doesn't really make the, the point you're trying to make. But if you keep them alive too long and they're not in enough pain, well, then that isn't really that useful for what you're trying to do. And so they had this thing called an execution stake. And they had perfected how to keep, they would hang a person, they would crucify someone. They had perfected the art of keeping somebody alive in the most amount of excruciating pain. And they would put one of those execution stakes right near the main thoroughfare of town because they wanted everybody to see this is what happens if you don't submit to Caesar. There is some evidence, like at the, the Jewish town of Magdala, that the Romans in one place crucified 3,000 people in one outing. Um, by the way, Mary Magdalene was from Magdala. So there were people living in the first century who had seen mass crucifixions of several thousand people at a time because this is what happens if you defy Caesar. And so the empire grew and grew and grew and grew. Now, 2,000 years ago, a movement started in the corner of this massive global empire. A group of people kept insisting that their leader, their rabbi, a man named Jesus from Nazareth, had been crucified by the empire, but had risen from the dead. They actually took Roman military propaganda and used it for their own purposes. So they would say, there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Jesus. And they would have gatherings where they would have bread because Caesar gave out bread as a way of saying, look it, I provide even your meal because food coming from the earth is the greatest source of provision people. And so Caesar had bread that he would give the masses as a way of saying, see, I provide for you. And so these first Christians would take bread and wine, which also connected for many of them with their Jewish um, tradition. And they would have meals, they called them agape feasts, agape meals, love meals, where they would remember their Jesus, who they believe had been crucified by the Romans and who had risen from the dead. And so this was the question, if you were a good Roman, is you would say to these Christians, look what Caesar has done. And these Christians had a phrase they would use. They would say, Jesus is Lord which was a terribly loaded, dangerous, subversive things to say because everybody knows Caesar is Lord. And if you defy Caesar, you die. That's how the world works. Remember, the Caesars believed they were the sons of God brought to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. And so I would argue, yeah, it is peace, depending on which end of the sword you are on. And so the Romans crushed everybody in sight because, of course, Caesar is Lord. Now, let's say you have a friend, a follower of this Jesus, and you say to them, what has your Jesus done? Look at the world Caesar is making. What has your Jesus done other than get crucified? Here's what you might say. You might say, how about you come with me this Sunday? 
this Thursday night, we're having one of our meals, one of our love meals. And here's what we do. We gather around a table and we're from all backgrounds, Romans, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, free, not free, people of all ages, men, women. It's a random lot of people. We gather around a table. We put some bread and wine in the middle of the table to remember this Jesus whose body was broken and blood was poured out. But before we eat, we go around and we make sure that all the single moms have their rent paid. We make sure that everybody who doesn't have a way to get out, maybe because of an illness and get food, that someone's going to bring them some food. We make sure that everyone's practical needs are met. And we make sure that those who have way more than enough feel free to share with those who don't have enough. And we do this because we believe Jesus is Lord. And we believe there's a whole new way to be human. So maybe you'd invite your friend, and when you and a friend were walking home that night, you would say to them, so who do you think is making a better world? Caesar or Jesus? Is the world made better through coercive, crushing military violence where you destroy everybody in your path who doesn't submit to you? Is the world made better through coercive military violence or is the world made better through sacrificial love? This was the question the first Christians asked their very Roman world. Who's making a better world, Caesar or Jesus? Or to put it another way, who do you believe is Lord, Caesar or Jesus? Now, couple of massive implications that came with this. First and foremost, when Jesus then and these first Christians, and by the way, a number of people didn't believe in resurrection. And then because of the Jesus story, all of a sudden, lots and lots and lots of people believed in resurrection. That doesn't happen in human history. Large numbers of people at a sort of sociological level, large numbers of people don't suddenly start believing something different. So there was this group of people who believed that Jesus' resurrection was God's way of vindicating the Jesus path, the path of humble, sacrificial love in which you ask not, how can I crush my enemy, but how can I serve the least among us who are the most downtrodden, the most oppressed, the most in need. And so what the resurrection said is that all oppressive power and brutal regimes are in fact temporary. That there is a power in the world greater than the bully. That there is a power at work greater than the brutal dictator who crushes everybody in sight. See, resurrection was hope for everybody everywhere who's got the boot of an empire on their neck. Resurrection was hope for everybody everywhere who there is a powerful regime who is holding them down. Can you see why people living in wealthy, triumphant empires might miss the power of this story? See, ask a lot of people, especially modern 
Christians living in the Western world what resurrection is about. And a lot of them will say, well, resurrection is about Jesus forgiving you of your sins, which makes the whole thing about you. But for the first followers of Jesus, yes, it was about you, but it was about a whole new kind of world. It was about all of society being rescued from violence and oppression. Can you see how a me-first selfish culture would turn this message into here's how I can go to heaven someday when I die? Resurrection was about hope for this world here and now. Literal, visceral, flesh and blood, economic, societal help and healing for this world that desperately needs it. Whole healing and help for the whole person, for the whole world. Man, I'm getting fired up. <laughs> Do you see how this message for very wealthy, affluent people might get, might lose some of its power? This is the original rage against this machine, against the machine. This is the original protest message. This says that everybody everywhere who's been held down, kicked to the edge, marginalized, had your dignity robbed, there is hope for you. These first followers of Jesus said, Jesus' resurrection is God's vindication that the way of Jesus, the way of sacrificial love, is a better way than the way of oppressive violence. You know why? Because resurrection says it's good to be human. Oftentimes with resurrection, people talk about how it has to be a bodily resurrection, and that's an awesome idea. Here's why. Because resurrection is about affirmation of the body. For many people, their fundamental framework of spirituality and religion was escape. Many people were taught your body is bad, your desires are bad, your urges are bad, the world is bad, anything physical is bad. And so essentially then their message, their Jesus message, their gospel was you got to escape out of this world, escape out of the body, escape out of the physical and get to some other higher realm where you leave that stuff behind. But it's good to be human. The Jesus story is about incarnation, and incarnation is the radical idea that the divine and the human can exist in the same place, a human body. It's the ultimate affirmation that it's okay and it's beautiful to be alive and to be here and to be now. See, resurrection says... There's always hope for the oppressed because there's always hope for this world. It's whole healing and help for the whole person, for the whole world, because everything is connected. Resurrection isn't just about you being rescued from everything you need to be rescued from. It's about the whole thing being rescued. This is why those first gospel writers were always connecting. Like when Mary sees Jesus on resurrection morning, she thinks he's the gardener. Of course, for a good Jew, the story begins in a garden. A garden is where everything falls apart in the Jewish story. And so a garden is where he rises from the dead to begin a new creation. There's a whole new world bursting forth right in the midst of this one. See, resurrection isn't just affirmation that it's good to be human. 
resurrection is affirmation of all of creation. It speaks to the inherent goodness of the material world. It's about laughter and wine and sunshine and sex and surfing and trees and flowers and birds and lying flat on your back in the grass in your backyard staring at the clouds in the sky. It's about holding that new vinyl, that record in your hands as you put it down on the turntable for the first time. Resurrection is an affirmation of the sweat, the dirt, the blood, all of the grittiness that we know to be human life. This book begins, this story, this faith, this tradition begins with the divine who announces that it's all good. And resurrection is the resounding climactic announcement that it's still good. It's worth being restored. It's worth being renewed. It's worth being reconciled. Do not let that preacher tell you that resurrection is just about your soul. It's about your skin. It's about your spirit. It's about your society. It's about your school. It's about all of the ways you use your sacred energies to do something with your life, to make the world a better place. And I should add, resurrection is the ultimate affirmation that creation is good and it is to be cared for. Isn't it fascinating that the people in our culture who talk the most about Jesus rising from the dead and a bodily resurrection also seem to be the people who talk the least about our divine, sacred responsibility to care for the environment. Oftentimes, it's the Christians who make the biggest deal about a bodily resurrection who also seem to be the biggest deniers of the very real tragedy of climate change and environmental catastrophe, essentially. This way in which we have treated the earth, in which we have abused and exploited it, is a sanctity of life issue. Jesus dies and resurrected to save us and to save our world and to save us from all of the ways that we have abused and exploited this precious, sacred, exotic creation that God announces is good. Resurrection is about our connection with the soil. It's about the food co-op. It's about those who are hungry. It's about those who are being trafficked, being rescued from it. It's about those who just need a small business loan so they can make something of their life. Resurrection is an affirmation that this world is good. It's good to be human. It's good to have a body. It's an affirmation of yes to all that you know hums in your bones about what life is and what what it's all about. Do not let somebody shrink resurrection down to a nice little selfish doctrine that can fit in your glove compartment. This is about the cosmos being healed and everything restored and renewed to the beautiful place you know it's always meant to be. Now, let's talk about you and your resurrection. When someone wrongs you, when they betray you, when they act towards you violently, whether with words, whether their gossip, with their look, with their contempt, maybe even physically, whatever it is, when someone wrongs you, everything within us wants to get revenge, right? So what we do, because we want to get back, they say something about us, 
we want to say something back. If you're like me, everything within you says, I'll show you who you're messing with. When we do this, when we come back at somebody with a corresponding act of harm or injustice or evil or violence, what we're doing is we're keeping the violence in circulation. They did that to us, so then we do something back to them, so then they do it back to us. Countries do this. You bombed us, we'll bomb you. It works at a small, intimate, personal level. It works in a marriage sometimes like this, all the way to the way in which countries have been acting this way for hundreds of years. The story of resurrection is about a Jesus who when evil is done to him and injustice comes his way, when he is betrayed and crucified, he does not retaliate and therefore keep the violence in circulation. But he takes it and he absorbs it, not because he's weak, not because he's passive, not because he has no strength, but because he understands that the greatest strength is the one who can absorb all that pain and let it wash over them. And when it does, it takes the pain and violence and evil out of circulation. When you do this, when you choose not to retaliate, but you choose to forgive, and by the way, forgiving doesn't mean that you pretend like what they didn't do is wrong or something, or you just brush them under the carpet. To forgive is the long process of deciding I will do anything other than keep this violence in circulation. When you choose to take the Jesus forgiving road, like he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What happens is you will bear the pain yourself, but you will come out the other side a different person. And that is called resurrection, my friends. Every time you have the opportunity to keep the wrong, the evil, the violence, the betrayal in circulation, you have an opportunity to practice resurrection. This is why when your friend forgives you, it's so moving. They're practicing and show you what it looks like to make a better world where the violence doesn't just stay in the endless feedback loop, but it's absorbed it's received, and then it is overcome with the one power in the universe that always prevails over that sort of darkness, and it's love. Number two, resurrection is about suffering. Resurrection insists that whatever the suffering, whatever the darkness, whatever the pain, whatever the violence, whatever the betrayal is, it doesn't have the last word. Resurrection frees us to call our human experiences what they are. Resurrection frees you to say it was awful, it was a hell on earth, it was unjust, it was evil, it was a nightmare what they did to me. Resurrection frees you to actually name it and not pretend like it wasn't a big deal. Resurrection frees you to shake your fists at the heavens Resurrection frees you to curse at God. Resurrection frees you to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on a dark, lonely, bloody Friday? 
See why resurrection is so freeing? Because you can live in the pain and acknowledge the pain and call it the pain and shout against the pain and sing against the pain because resurrection insists that whatever that is, it doesn't have the last word. (sighs) What is that kind of faith like? What is that kind of view of the world like? Whatever it is, maybe you've just gone through a divorce. Maybe your kids are breaking your heart. Maybe the person that you love is cold. Maybe your business just went south on you. Maybe the whole thing is blowing up in your face. Resurrection says, talk about it, name it, express it, feel it, but don't ever be deceived that the last word about that situation has been spoken. Resurrection says the story is never over. See, for many of us, we flirt with this idea that it's dark, that at the end of the day, the story really is lonely. The story really is despair, that the universe really is a cold, lonely, dark place where we're all alone. And so what happens when we see the world like that, where that's the lens through which we view things, is when we do see hope, compassion, love, when we are inspired by something, something says to us, oh, that's just an aberration. That's just a momentary blip. That was just a moment that you can't trust that because the truth is it's a cold, lonely, dark universe. Resurrection raises the possibility that the darkness, despair, And all those moments when your soul is choking might actually be the exception. Those might actually be the aberration. And light and hope and love might be the resounding bass note that rumbles underneath it all. Is death the story and there might be a little life here and there? Or is life the story with some death here and there. Resurrection raises provocative questions about how you view the universe that we're living in. Is it a universe that in the end we are all alone, or is it undergirded by a Trinitarian wonder of love and grace and joy and divine creativity that never stop flowing up and spilling over? That is the question resurrection asks. Now, perhaps you're hearing all this and you're like, yeah, but did a dude raise from the dead? Because that stuff doesn't happen. Great question, one final thought. We're living in the midst of a quantum revolution. The past 100 years, the past 110 years, have brought about an astonishing number of discoveries about how the universe actually works. And what we've discovered from the work of Max Planck and Niels Bohr and a number of pioneering quantum physicists and their friendships with Albert Einstein, was that there is something called atoms. Atoms are very small, little packets and relationships of energy that are actually sort of the building blocks of all of matter. And what they've discovered is that at a subatomic level, there are these particles that make up atoms and make up, and atoms make up everything we know to be everything. That the universe at its core is a relationship of energy. And what they've discovered at a subatomic level is that there are subatomic particles. There are particles that, can exist, the same one particle can exist in two different places. They've also discovered subatomic particles that can disappear in point A and appear in point B without traveling the distance in between. They've also discovered subatomic particles that when they're bonded and then separated, they 
are aware of what the other one is doing without any communication in between them. The cells in your body, 300 million is it every minute? 300 million cells die in your body. But your body also produces in that same minute another several hundred million cells to replace them. So constantly your body, which is made of about 7 billion, billion, billion atoms, which are relationships of energy that do very, very bizarre things. Those atoms make molecules, those molecules make cells, and those cells that make you, you, are constantly dying. They're hardwired, coded to make more of you, and yet they're dying and your body is producing new cells that somehow know how to keep being you. But they don't keep being you of a second ago. They create new cells that know how to be you in this moment. So your body experiences billions of times a day at a cellular level death of those cells that are dying and the rebirth of cells that continue to make you you. The technical word for this is, of course, resurrection. So when someone says... Well, I don't believe in some guy rising from the dead. I don't believe in that weird stuff. Weird, inexplicable, awe-inspiring things are happening in your physical body. We know from objective science billions and billions and billions of times a minute. We live in a weird, wonderful place. So you may have a problem with the guy rising from the dead. But the problem is much stranger things are happening in you, we know for sure, all the time. We're all living according to a story. We're all following some narrative of what matters. I believe in this Jesus, and I'm doing my best to practice resurrection because I can think of no better story. May you, my brothers and sisters, may you come to see that the tomb is empty. May you come to see that resurrection is not just about you and your soul and your sins and all the ways you've made a mess of things. You being rescued from everything you need to be rescued from. May you come to see resurrection as the giant rescue work that's going on. May you see a whole new world bursting forth right here in the midst of this one. May you, when you're wronged, make the choice not to keep all the anger and rage and violence in circulation, but may you bear it in such a way that you come out the other side a different person. And in doing that, may you come to know resurrection. And may the grace and peace of the resurrected Christ be with you.